I want to I want to begin tonight with some good news and some bad news. Uh, the good news is that according to uh, the latest Ligonier Ministries state of theology, and it, it's about a year old, so uh, bear with me, but it's, it's still good news and it's still somewhat recent, but um, the good news is that fewer and fewer professing Christians uh, believe that everyone is basically good. Uh, back in 2016, uh, 54% of professing believers said that everyone sins a little, but most people are good. Um, in 2020, only 46% agreed. So it's getting better. But here's the bad news. Only 25% of professing believers agree that even the smallest of sins are deserving of damnation or judgment. 9% are kind of waffling, a whopping 66% disagree that sin is deserving of judgment. And to make matters worse, and I quote, there's been an alarming decrease in the percentage of those who express clear views on how sinful, uh, how sinful man can be justified in the sight of God. 75%, only 75% of professing believers believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's down from 84% in 2018. That means one-fourth of professing Christians are either wrestling with or are certain we somehow merit or earn our salvation, either by ourselves or in combination with the Lord, as if he needs assistance. And when we put all that together what we find is this, while most, if not all, Christians do believe that we're all sinners, way, way too many believe that the sins that we've all committed um, are not actually cosmic acts of treason against a holy God. In their minds, again, way too many believe that, it's only, that, that our sins are only minor indiscretions. And not only that, way too many believers believe that the good that we do outweighs the bad that we do. As if somehow the scales of good and evil and right and wrong tip in our favor because of how we live. Whatever deficits we incur uh, due to our sin can be and are actually offset by the good things that we do. And when we compare ourselves to each other and to others, again, in the minds of too many, we're always in a one-up position, right? We're always better, and we really, really feel good about ourselves. We may not be perfect. Again, in the minds of many, we, we're not perfect, but at least we're not like those sinners over there. At least we're not as bad as those people. And the thoughts come to our mind, do they, do they not? How ridiculous. How crazy that sounds. Have they not read their Bible? Do they not believe 
in God, or if they do believe in God, he must be a God that they've created in their own image. How foolish, how self-righteous. They, they've obviously not heard the gospel. They must attend one of those big box churches that are emotionally driven and performance-oriented and confuse law and gospel. There's no other explanation. And then we go from there to say, I'm so glad that we attend Christ church where we confess and repent of our sins and receive an assurance of pardon and we sing theologically sound songs and we emphasize the simple means of grace and, and we hear the true gospel and we observe the sacrament every week. I'm so glad we're not like them. I'm so glad we're not in that church. Do you hear it? It's really subtle. In our abhorrence of self-righteousness, we ourselves can detest the self-righteous and in so doing reveal our own self-righteousness. And I begin there because the question I'm going to ask at the end is this. Who are you? Who am I? Which man are you? Which man am I? And I want us to be able to ask and answer the question honestly. As difficult as it might be, we need to be able to answer our story tonight has two men, two prayers, and two verdicts. And all of that leads or points to God's mercy towards sinners. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word? I ask every week, it's no less a need this week, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and grant us the ability to apprehend and appraise the truth regarding Christ and his gospel. Would you awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, but then come along and refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I'm just as weak and needy this week as I was last and will be next. So I ask for your support and strength and and I ask that you would fill me with your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something positive for your church. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're going to notice, as or you already have, as you uh, heard John read, that uh, our passage this week begins much as it did last week. Uh, the uh, previous parable that he told in verses 1 to 8, uh, in both cases, Luke shares the purpose of the stories. Something that he doesn't do in the previous stories in the gospel. And the other thing that we see and notice is uh, that the purpose of the parable is not to confuse, it's not to hide the truth, but it's actually to bring the truth forward and, and not to conceal, but to bring it out into the open. And he does so uh, to speak to a particular group of people. It's targeted. And 
he says it's directed towards those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, it's, it's targeting the self-righteous who actually despise others. It's directed at those who thought too highly of themselves and thought too lowly of others. It's directed to, toward those who are constantly playing this game of comparing themselves to other people. And again, always coming out on top. And they weren't afraid to let other people know it, particularly those to whom they compared themselves. Those who they looked down on because the others fell short of the standard that they, the morally superior, right, this, that standard that, that they embodied and expertly displayed. And the two characters in the story are two men. The first man's a Pharisee. And despite the bad reputation that that Pharisee and other Pharisees have in our minds, and rightfully so, but then at the time, as Jesus is telling the story, this, this Pharisee would have been considered an upstanding and outstanding uh, character. He actually would have been the anticipated hero of the story. They hear of the Pharisee and they think, oh, this, this is the hero. He, for most listening, he would, have been, he would have been the character that embodied all that was good and right. He would have been the character that was a prestigious, well, he was, uh, the Pharisee was a prestigious member and even leader in the community. He was a, would have been considered a man of integrity. He would have been considered morally upright and ethically straight. He would have been the one that lived in and worked in prominent circles. And the position that he held would have been something put forward for everyone else to attain to. If, we're, if it were today, it would have been a prominent theologian. It would have been a seminary uh, president or professor, and could have even been an elder of a local church. The other character was a tax collector. The other man is a tax collector who would have been considered the anticipated villain of the story. Uh, he was the one that would have embodied all that was evil. He would have been the one that was considered a scoundrel and a criminal, or was considered a, a scoundrel and a criminal. He was a disreputable member in the community, not looked upon at all, but looked down upon. And it was because he had turned his back on his people, on his community. He had sold his soul to the Romans, all for money, of which he had a lot of. He was immoral. He was unethical. He was surrounded by people of similar ilk. And him, or, or he, ran around in uh, rogue circles. He would have been a corrupt swindler. And the, the situation that he lived in, or the type of person he lived in, or the, the role that he had, or, or the things that he were doing were to be uh, uh, abstained from and, and avoided at all costs. And if it were today, he would have been anyone who would have taken advantage of somebody else 
and made money at their expense. So consider anyone from someone who runs a Ponzi scheme to a mobster to a drug dealer or a sex trafficker. And you've got polar opposites. They couldn't have been more diametrically opposed. And Jesus says these two men walk into the temple to pray. It would have been anticipated that the Pharisee, right, that, that should be what he does. The tax collector, not so much. It would have been very different. The Pharisee walks in, and he walks in confidently and even brazenly right through the outer court into the inner court where he believed he deserved to be. It's where he felt most comfortable. And as he walks in and as he stops, he lifts his eyes to heaven. He lifts, probably even lifts his hands and begins to pray, not, not silently or quietly as was proper and the custom at the time, but, but out loud for all to hear. And as he did, he exposes his heart. He reveals who he really is. It's as if he, before he walks in, he puts on that, that mask of pretense and sticks it on and walks in and begins to pray. And he draws everyone's attention, even the Lord's, to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I have. Prideful, arrogant, self-centered, self-promoting, self-congratulatory. He uses the word I five times. I thank, I am, I fast, I give, I get. I'm a great guy. Everyone should like me. Everyone would be privileged to know me. Because he didn't just love the law, he didn't just fulfill the law, he exceeded the law. He didn't just fast on the one time that was prescribed on the Day of Atonement, he fasted twice a week. And we know from other places that more than likely he also disfigured his face and moped around so that everybody knew what he was doing. He didn't just tithe, if you remember from earlier in our study of the gospel, he didn't just tithe on the, the produce in his garden, he tithed on the weeds in his garden. He gave a tenth of everything that he had. And he didn't do it anonymously. If he was on Facebook, he would have been somebody that would say, he would let everybody know how privileged he was to have such a great opportunity to give as he had given. But his feelings of superiority weren't the only problem. They were rivaled only by his contempt for others which made what he was doing a display of extreme... He was the epitome of haughtiness. 
And he didn't simply refrain from stealing. He didn't simply refrain from trampling on the rights of others. He was, wasn't just a one-woman man. He wasn't just someone who refused to take advantage of others or benefit at their expense. He saw those who did those things as worthless and disgraceful and so far beneath them, beneath him, that he would have no problem trampling upon them. And in the end, repentance was a foreign concept, unnatural, unnecessary, especially as long as he continued to compare himself to others. There was no need. The light shining from his own meritorious work and pride cast a shadow upon the throne of grace. His own self-righteous work in his mind was sufficient to quench God's wrath and to earn God's favor to be turned back toward him, expressing favor and acceptance. So he wasn't in the need. He had no need of grace and mercy. He had what he believed he deserved. He had what he believed God was obligated to give him based on his own good behavior. The tax collector, again, polar opposite. He walks into the temple, but he does so reluctantly. And rather than walk through the outer court into the inner court, he stops in the outer court and moves over to the farthest corner he can find. And he doesn't lift his head to heaven. He bows his head and closes his eyes. He doesn't lift his hands in prayer. He begins to beat his chest, all of which express what he believed about himself and his standing before God. He felt distant. He felt spiritually alienated. He was sorrowful for his sin. He, he was at a point of anguish, his soul just anguished within him because he was gripped with the, tr the truth and the reality of his sin. He didn't come in comparing himself proudly to those around him. He came in humbly comparing himself to a holy and righteous and good and just God. He wouldn't have argued, right? The, the Pharisee, I'm so glad that I'm not like him. And the tax collector would have said, you're right. I am unworthy. I am worthless. I am one to be despised because I'm disgraceful. And in the end, repentance was all he had. He had no other option. He didn't, he didn't attempt to remind God of the few good things that he had done trying to tip those scales. He knew that was impossible. He didn't even, listen, he doesn't even notice, he doesn't exhaustively plod through his litany of sins and transgressions. He simply cries out, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. The text actually says the sinner. 
He believed he was the only sinner in the, in the court, maybe even in the temple. He would have arm wrestled Paul. Hey, I, winner gets title of chief of sinners. He didn't believe himself to be better than anyone else because he knew there was no one worse than him or didn't believe that there was anyone worse than him. The only light in the room as far as he was concerned was the light emanating from the throne of grace. He knew that he couldn't fast enough or tithe enough or serve enough to earn God's favor or to quench God's wrath or to earn God's acceptance. He knew anything he could do to offer, he could possibly think of to offer in an effort to appease God was insufficient and a waste of time. The only thing that he believed he deserved or that God was obligated to give him was his wrath. He knew he wasn't in a position of needing and doing anything other than crying out for the mercy of God. And that's exactly what he does. And we need to stop just for a moment and delve into this mercy that he's asking for. Uh, because Dale, uh, or I'm sorry, Ralph Davis says this. He says, be merciful to me that, that what he said is, is, he says is too weak. Because he simply wasn't asking God to withhold uh, what he deserved. The word translated be merciful actually means God uh, atone, or the, the word means to atone for his sin and turn away his wrath by means of a sacrifice. That's all encompassed in that one word. So he apparently understood what was going on in the temple while he's there. Right? He's either he's there at one of two times. Either the morning or the afternoon, time of prayer, and in either case or both cases, it would have been a time when the burnt offering was offered. And you'll remember if you were with us uh, back in 19, we uh, studied the book of Leviticus. And if you remember at that, that time, um, this was the most common of Old Testament sacrifices. It happened most often. Uh, it was a time when someone had to bring, depending upon their means, they had to bring a bull, a goat, or a, a bird, and it had to be costly to them. That If it was a bull or a goat, it had to be unblemished, it had to be perfect, it had to be a male. And, and the person that brought that animal in would, would kind of lean into it and place his hands upon it or on his head. Uh, in some of the sacrifices where that took place, it, was a, 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 it would symbolize the transference of sin from the person to the animal, but uh, more than likely it was actually just a means by which the animal was identified as a vicarious substitute that stood in the place of the one who brought it. And that individual who brought that bull or a goat would slit its throat and drain its blood and then skin the animal and then wash the internal organs and then he would burn it all. There would be nothing left. And it had to be burned because even though it was perfect by earthly standards, it still needed to be purified and refined by fire. And if, if, a, if the bird was given, if you had less means, you would bring the bird and the priest would actually do that for you and sprinkle the blood uh, on the altar. And this, sin, this uh, offering didn't, didn't remove sin, it didn't remove the sin nature, but it did atone for the debt, right? The wages or, or, the, or the debt, the, the ransom that needed to be paid for the wage of sin. But the focus, if, again, if you go back and you remember, the, the focus was actually on the aroma, 
right? In Leviticus, it says it was a, sm a soothing aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. And what that meant was that as that animal burned and that soothing aroma, as the smoke lifted, then the idea was that God was being propitiated, right? He was being appeased. His wrath was being turned away and his favor was being turned toward the one that was giving it and offering the sacrifice. And the burning of the entire animal symbolized the, the, complete, the complete nature of, of man's sin and the need for forgiveness and God's willingness to provide that and, and God's total claim upon that person's life. And because it was all burned, unlike the other offerings, there was none returned to the priest or returned to the person. So in the end, the, 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 the sacrifices were, they were daily and they were costly. Uh, they were personal. They were substitutionary. And it granted access to the Lord, that which had been forbidden. And so this offering that someone would bring, it would, they would be acknowledging their sin. It would be... Um, a way by they, they were acknowledging and turning to faith in the Lord and receiving, um, well, expressing thankfulness to the Lord for the forgiveness that he was offering. And it was a way by they, they would resolve to live in a holy manner. That's the context for this offering. This man knows what's going on. He may even see what's going on but he knows that this is taking place, and in the midst of that, he cries out, God, have mercy on me. Provide a sacrifice for me. It's my only hope. Provide a sacrifice that will atone for my sin, my sin and that your wrath might be turned from me, and that you would, you would grant me favor. Ralph Davis goes on to say, he cries out for something beyond himself and outside of himself. Because unlike the Pharisee, he, he knows God is the only one that could do for him what he cannot do for himself. He knew his sins needed to be atoned for. He knew God's wrath needed to be turned away and his favor needed to be turned toward him. But he also knew that he couldn't do that by himself. Only God could do what needed to be done. Which brings us to the last point, two verdicts. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, that man, the second man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. Two men go into the temple, two men pray, two verdicts are pronounced, and what Jesus says is scandalous. Because remember, the Pharisee was the anticipated hero. The tax collector was the anticipated villain. And yet, the villain was counted righteous. And the hero was not. The villain received the verdict of not guilty. The hero did not. And I say verdict because that's what justification is. Justification is a legal declaration of not guilty. And the tax collector received that le legal declaration. And he, at that moment, was made right with God. 
The Pharisee, on the other hand, he was not justified. He had, he had been declaring his own righteousness. And because he had been declaring his own righteousness, he had not received God's declaration of righteousness. The tax collector looked outside of himself and cried out to, uh, cried out to God in, in faith for mercy. The Pharisee looked at himself and trusted in himself. And in the words of Philip Ryken, the Pharisee was too busy being self-righteous to receive God's righteousness that only comes as a gift. So in Jesus' story, he presents two men and they, they both pray and they experience two verdicts and the tax collector humbled himself. He owned and repented of his sin. He acknowledged his own spiritual bankruptcy and inability. He cried out for mercy because he could not do what needed to be done. And as a result, God declared him righteous. And, because, and Jesus said because he had humbled himself, he would one day be exalted on that day of judgment. The Pharisee, on the other hand, exalted himself. He maintained uh, and trusted in his own righteousness and his own independence. He flaunted his independence and how he was able to do everything himself. And Jesus said, that man, that man who was exalting himself is going to be humbled on that day of judgment. So here comes the question that we began with. The question is, which man are you? Which man am I? Which of the two men are we? Are you, am I, are we the Pharisee? Trusting in our own self-righteousness? Trusting in our own selves to earn or merit our standing, our right standing with God? Are we overly confident in our position before God and in our own ability to save ourselves? Are we resting in our own work for our salvation? Are we, are we the type of people who constantly compare ourselves to others and always remain on top? And do we look down on others as those who fall short of the standard that we somehow believe we embody and expertly display because we're morally superior and do we let everybody else know it? Or do we recognize our sin and bankruptcy? Do we acknowledge who we really are? Is Repentance, our only option, and mercy, our only hope. Do we see ourselves as the chief of sinners, no more worthy than anyone else of our salvation? Do we realize sin is no respecter of persons and that all have fallen short of the glory of God, including ourselves? And do we own our inability 
to rescue ourselves and anyone else for that matter. Fortunately for us, we don't rely upon Old Testament sacrifices because Christ's one for all sacrifice upon the cross where he laid himself down voluntarily, dying, His death fulfilled, his death fully and finally fulfilled all of those Old Testament sacrifices. We are, no mistake, we are in need of daily atonement. But fortunately, for those who look to Christ, his sacrifice is sufficient to cover each and every sin. Our justification is not earned by us. It's not merited by us. It has been earned and merited for us by Christ. He secured it for us. Question 33 of our Shorter Catechism says, Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins. He accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imparted to us. It has nothing to do with us, and it's received by faith alone. So our call, our call is to come in faith to Jesus. Our call is to rest in His work, His sacrificial death. Our call is to rest in His life of perfect righteousness that's granted to us and credited to us. Our call is to repent and believe on Him because He is our only hope. And that's not only true for us, that's true of everyone. We have a story to tell of two men, two prayers, and two verdicts. The story everyone needs to hear. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those, please, who have heard your word. And may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray these things. Amen.